You Are What You Read is brought to you by Book of the Month. And you listeners are in luck because today we are talking with an author who happens to have a lot of titles available at Book of the Month, the great Alice Hoffman. I love Book of the Month, Alice loves Book of the Month, and so do countless other authors because Book of the Month brings you the best titles at the best prices. You can check out their November selections now, plus their entire catalog of books, which includes Alice's Latest, The Invisible Hour, and how about these blockbuster bestsellers for Halloween, Practical Magic, The Book of Magic, The Rules of Magic, Magic Lessons, and The Marriage of Opposites. And now with code ADRI, A-D-R-I, you can get your first title for just $9.99. So head to bookofthemonth.com and add code ADRI. A-D-R-I, at checkout to claim this deal. Thank you, Book of the Month. Happy Halloween. I hope you're all enjoying the holiday with family and friends and a great book. So I was thinking about who I wanted to interview for this special holiday edition of You Are What You Read. And who better than the beloved Alice Hoffman? Alice is the author of over 30 novels, three books of short fiction, and eight books for children and young adults. Her titles include some of your favorite book-to-screen adaptations, Practical Magic, Aquamarine, and more. But before Alice was an international sensation, she was a reader. So I want to go back to where it all began. Alice, do you remember the first book you read as a child? First book, My Puppy. Totally. <laughs> and that's been my life, my life with dogs. But I feel like, you know, if I hadn't been a reader, my life would have been completely and utterly different. And in my neighborhood growing up, my mother was the only person I knew who had books, who had bookshelves. I knew some some of my friends, their parents had Reader's Digest. That was it. So it was a really working class neighborhood. There were no books except for my mother. So I would steal books off of her bookshelf. You know, you're saying something that I think is pretty profound about working class people. Books were in every way our salvation, Mm -hmm. in every way, because we were exposed to worlds. You know, I see, well, you know, occasionally there's gluttons of privilege when I'm traveling and I see them and I see the kids on their phones and they're going to some place where I'm going to work and they're not aware of the world around them in a way that's intimate. And books give us that, don't they? They really do. And you know, it's funny because when I see the girls from my high school who I still am in touch with, you know, and I I said to them, you know, what do you remember about me? Because I have a terrible memory and I'm all, you know, kind of blocked about the past. And they say, you were always walking to the library. Wow. I went to the library in the next town. The town was Malvern. They let me have a library card, even though I didn't live there. And that was it. My life changed. I don't know where I would be or what I would be doing. Did it make you fall in love? Uh, Did you fall in love with the written word or just the idea of escape? What was it for you? What compelled you? I think it was both, really, because I I felt like I didn't know anything about the world. And I learned everything from reading fiction. You know, 
whether it was right or wrong, that's, that's where I learned from. And, you know, one of the people that really influenced me early on was Ray Bradbury. Wow. I feel like when you read him when you're 12 or 13, there are a couple of people that I read at that age. And I think that's the age, especially for girls, when you really get affected by certain books and they can change your life. And Ray Bradbury, my father had left home when I was about eight. And for me, Ray Brad, and he left behind Ray Bradbury books. You, when, when we read you, these worlds that unspool are so effortless. It just feels like I'm entering, you know, your current one, The Invisible Hour. I, I told you I just fell into it and I was in this world and there's a library and there's, you, you're, you're writing about women all the time and the challenges of being female. Can you remember back before you, you cared if you were a girl or a boy? I, I, that's my favorite thing to go back to in my mind is like when you're 10 years old, before all the drama starts. Well, you know, something I knew that I was a girl because I knew that in school, everyone we read was male. So I knew I wasn't that. And the first thing that really changed it for me was reading The Diary of Anne Frank because mm-hmm. it was, I read it and I thought you can be a young Jewish girl and you can be a writer. And that blew my mind. That was a huge turning point for me because I was always aware and I had an older brother and I was always aware that there were certain things, you know, girls were not supposed to do. You know, I mean, when I was growing up, you know, the doctors, every, everybody in power, they were all male. So I, I, I never thought, you know, I, I am them. I always felt like other. It sounds like, Alice, you skipped through the picture book period and the young adult book period, and you went right to the big guns. <laughs> it sounds like you didn't do those. I, I mean, like, did no. you read the horse books like Black Stallion and all that? No, I didn't. You read a lot. I'm so surprised because Long Island is working class, but there's a big horse culture out there. Not where I was coming from. Okay. Okay. It was kind of like Queens, you know, it was just over the border. Yeah, it was the Queens over the border, but there's water. I mean, I grew up in a place with no water, so. There's no water. (laughs) You didn't see any ships or anything? You didn't go Uh -uh. over to the. But the one, I did read all those books, those Latta dog books, all these books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You love dogs. Dogs are your passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I, I, no, where I was, where I grew up, you know, it was like Queens. It was concrete. There were no trees. And I started reading these books by a guy named Edward Eager. I don't know if you read him. Mm-hmm. The magic books, magic by the lake, magic or not, half magic. And, oh, I just fell in love with his books because it happened in, for him, it happened in Connecticut and suburbia, but it made it seem like magic could happen anywhere. Did your readers ever connect? Did they ever say to you, hey, did you read those books? Because because it's so interesting. Style is so informed by that passionate thing you reread four million times. Yeah. It's true. You don't even know how it, it affects you. Did you ever read 15 by Beverly Cleary? Uh-uh. I was reading Wuthering Heights and having my mind completely blown. <laughs> no, no. Wuthering Heights I loved, but what I really loved was Jane Eyre. Did you love Jane Eyre? No, because I think that you're either a Jane Eyre person or a Wuthering Heights person. I think you're right. Right? And I was com- completely... I think Jane Eyre is kind of more about work and becoming kind of an independent person. 
you know, reader, mm-hmm. I married him. Why she married him, I don't know. But you know what? Well, why okay. wouldn't she marry him? Ah. I mean, I, I he is so, uh, he represents males to me, that guy, mm. Rochester. I know. Well, okay. So we could go, eh. It's our, it's, a, you know, we're talking about people that are made up, so it's fine. But Rochester, it was all about Rochester. And she makes an incredible statement at the end of that book that when he's stripped of everything he has, he can finally be a real guy, a real person, and connect to her. I have this thing where I am in love with this book called The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rees. Oh, you don't, you, oh, I love that book too. I love that book. And that's the prequel written by this genius writer who kind of disappeared and then was refound, Jean Rees. And it shows you kind of who the mad woman in the attic really is and who Mr. Rochester was. I mean, you know, really we're talking about, you know, the female writers, you know, Emily and Charlotte who created all this, who created, you know, them. I always feel like I'm really in love with Emily Bronte. Yes. Yes. I agree. I mean, they were a collective. I imagine them, you know, on the North Sea, you know, on holiday, everything's atmospheric, like where you live now, well, you're also in New York, but it's the East Coast is very atmospheric. Yes. You know, um, uh, go up the coast to Maine and to, you know, Vermont and, you know, you go up that way to the North and it, 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 and I think Massachusetts reminds me a lot of 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 the UK. Yeah, and all of the amazing writers who lived here. I know, just amazing. I just recently went to Emily Dickinson's house, which they in Amherst, which they've redone. It's such a great journey to go there, and you know, and and I've been writing about Hawthorne in The Invisible Hour, and just going to his house out in Concord. I mean, it's kind of amazing that they all were at the same time and it all I mean, think about the transcendentalist Thoreau, who I'm I've been in love with since I was a kid. I, I reread Walden all the time. I think it's like the mo- the wisest book ever written. And then and then Ralph Waldo Emerson, did you love him in those essays? Yes. And every time there's a funeral and I'm asked to write a eulogy, I go to his about Thoreau because it's most beautiful thing but you go you you go into their houses oh wow i know it's really great it's like time traveling and when you when you think about you know all of the great writing that was done here it's it is very atmospheric you know and it's it's also just beautiful here i never thought i'd live in a place like this really oh no i mean seriously we had no trees did you have trees you had trees oh i was in appalachia i had the most luscious gore i mean i can close my eyes and still smell the air and particularly in the fall it smelled like vanilla smoke it was like everything was delicious yeah do you remember all those those books um when you were a kid like coffee tea and me Yes, but the, about the flight attendants. Yeah, about the flight attendants. Yeah, my mother had that Back one. then, no, it was this Stewie's. Yeah, it was dirty. Pierce's, yeah. Oh, you know what else I found on her bookshelf? It's Shirley Jackson's books, both her nonfiction and her fiction. And oh, she man. blew my mind in, in every way. That was a real find. And then I also found A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which was really, I think I wasn't supposed to read that. Um, it was, But you know, that one- a tree grows in Brooklyn. It is so fraught 
I missed the, the abuse parts of it and stuff and the alcoholic dad and the, I, I was focused on her and how she in her, she made her own little world. Yeah. That was like, uh, that was kind of, all these books really kind of just blew my mind and just like made me feel like there was another world. I mean, I planned on dropping out of high school and had the papers and my mother thought it was fine. And I had this guidance counselor who, she also changed my life, who said, you know, if you go in the summer, you'll get out a year early. If you just can't stand school, just do that. And so I did what she told me. And I, and, I, and that also changed my life. But then college, like then, then you went to college at Adelphi, right? Yes. And I'm very involved with them still, but I went to night school. I, mean, I, I just took a few courses. I never intended to go to college, but Adelphi is a great place and it is still a great place. I'm coming there with you in the spring. We're going to have a literary festival there. It's a great place. I think it's still something like 80% female and like something like 75% minority. Most of the people are the first person in their families to go to college. And the professors are amazing and great because it's 20 minutes from New York City. And they just have a great English department, great it's a great school, so I'm I'm really glad to still be involved with them. They're also very involved with breast cancer. They have the New York State um, Breast Cancer Hotline, and there's a lot of people who do go to the social work school and the nursing school. I don't know. I I feel like that place was really important to me. What were you doing during the day? What were you doing during the day when you were going to night school? I always worked. I worked at the dress barn and always had a job, but, but then I finished. And my brother, who's really very smart and a scientist, was living in San Francisco. And he said, you should come out here. There's a good school out here. You should come to California. And so, like, I applied. And I had never heard of Stanford. And they gave me a big fellowship and money. And, you know, I it was just such a great choice to go out there. Fantastic. And L.A. then was natural progression. You went down there. I went, I was there for a while when I was writing screenplays, but I never really lived there. I always just went there and then left. Where did you live when you were there? New York. Oh. So when you went to LA, where did you stay? The Oakwood? No, you know where I used to stay? The Chateau. The Chateau Marmont? Yeah. When it was run down and, and, and really funky. And I think John Belushi. I stayed there. Just- was he there? He was alive. He was there. Wow. I loved him. I, and then I stayed lots of different places, but I remember that was my first introduction to L.A. was the Chateau Marmont. You know, I'm friends, um, dear friends with Alan Bell, who wrote on the original Saturday Night Live. And, you know, all the women that wrote on that show, were so, they were pretty all pretty fabulous and distinctive and different and the whole thing. And he... I, I'd like beat the stories out of him because I want to know about Belushi. I just, when he came on the scene, he was an actor that my father and I could agree on that he was uh-huh. great. He was so funny. So funny. So funny and, and irreverent and relentless. Sad story there. Yeah. Too young. Yeah. That's yeah. that, that kind of like what the Chateau was like back then. And, I mean, I, you know, remembered reading this story about William Faulkner when he used to work at Hollywood. He said he had to go home to write and they thought he meant like his hotel. But no, he really went home to write. I mean, I I just. To Mississippi. (laughs) Yeah. 
I'll see you next week. Yeah. What was the first book that you fell in love with, like deeply fell in love with? It's called The Story of Silent Night. My Aunt Irma gave it to me. And, you you know, I'm I'm tying this all together because we're going to talk about movies, your movies, which are incredible. And everybody's watching them this time of year, which just thrills me. It's like you're the Halloween queen Um, in the good way, magical way. Thank you. Uh, I would say... Uh, the story of Silent Night was my aunt was the president of the National Catholic Librarians Association in the in the 60s and 70s, and she gave me a book in the early 70s called this. She gave each of us a book, and I still have it. And I studied that book like the Rosetta Stone because it was that 70s collagey stuff. Yeah. Like, right, but with realistic characters set in it. And it's basically the story of this poor guy in Germany who can't get the organ to work in his church. And he has to write a hit. <laughs> <laughs> this is like this is like the story of my career, okay? He had to write a hit to save himself, and he wrote Silent Night. Is this true? It's, a tr- it's based on a true story, yeah. That is so interesting when you think about it in terms of writing and in terms of being a creator that you have to, you know, yes, you could sit in your room and just and leave it there, but do you want it to be heard by other people? I never thought about being published. Did you? No, never. But I was a dramatist and so are you. I saw myself making movies and plays. I did that later to kind of support my books. I was a screenwriter for 25 years, but I did it late after I was already a novelist. Alice, I just saw Barbara King saw her. I think we're both great fans of hers. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And she told me she's been writing screenplays for years. I had no idea. I, I didn't know that. I No, I didn't know that about her. And probably people don't know it about me because so few things got made back at the time when I was doing yeah, it. Yeah, but you did get things made. I mean, if, if we, you got a lot of great ones made and and most people don't get one made but that's what barbara said to me i never got anything made i said well that's why i didn't know yeah and i never got anything made that i wrote so other people wrote you know the screenplays and i was lucky that they turned out to be good but you know i just felt like when i started writing i was just writing for myself and you know i went to i went to a graduate school, I went to a, a, a master's program, but I still, none of us there really thought about getting published. There were a couple of older guys who were there, like Ray Carver was, was around. Wow. And he, you know, we knew that he seemed like a genius, but he wasn't that published at the time. And um, Ken Kesey had been there when he had been published, but we didn't really think that much about that. Mm-hmm. We were just there to write. Just there to write. And that's important yeah. because now nobody talks about this, Alice, and I, I, I think it's important to talk about it. 2.8 million books were self-published in the United States last year. Wow. And the traditional publishers, which were six when I started, there was probably seven when you started. I think there were seven. You know, they, they com- you know, what, what it com- combine their yeah. whatever. So we're down to five. But you only have so many editors. You only have so many designs. When I started, there were there were many, many more publishers because they weren't all combined. And now it's just, I, are there four or five? I don't know. But I five. Think it, it's really hard for people. So 
And the expectations for people who are publishing now are completely, utterly different than when I started and probably when you started. That's right. Well, there was no social media. It was starting when I was when I started, but they they really lean in and rely on that. And I think it's um, it, it's okay if you do that, but then you also have to, as a corporation, have a social media presence that's impressive and. Um, current and modern and, you know, if you expect the authors to do it. But, you know, Alice, I don't know that you have to worry about that. People know you. I don't know. I think everybody worries about it now, Des. And I feel like that's one of the reasons that I like to kind of shake it up and sometimes write a children's book or a teen book or Mm -hmm. a book of short stories. And, um, you know, I just feel like it makes me remember why I'm doing it, you know, that I'm ultimately doing it for myself. You know, there's something that I want. There's a story that I need to know. Uh Uh And, and that's basically it. But do you also have a sense when I read you that I'm walking through a door and whatever I leave behind, I, I want to stay in that world I want it to unfold before me. It's how I felt when I first read Jane Eyre for you, Wuthering Heights, where I didn't want to leave her world. I really didn't. You know, that's how I feel when I'm writing. It's such a relief to me. I mean, look, I don't like all the revisions. I like doing the first draft. I don't like the 20 revisions I then do. I I hate that. That to me feels like a term paper. But that first draft, it's like diving into a pool of water or something. It's... It's just so incredibly refreshing and I kind of need it for my soul, but I have problems with, you know, being in reality. And I don't mm-hmm. know if, if I was a reader and that's, that's what came of it, or I had that first and then I became a reader. I mean, I don't know which, which happened first. Well, what is real if you think about it, right? I think we spend a lot of time in the state of, imaginary, of our imaginations. Frankly, it's a very satisfying place to be. Well, we do, but does everybody? I wonder that sometimes when I'm standing online and I'm in the middle of a plot in my book and that's all I'm thinking about. I don't notice anything going on. I'm thinking, what are other people waiting for their coffee thinking about? They don't have a, they don't what have a- are they thinking about? Well, um, I think maybe, um, ang- maybe there's worries and anxieties or maybe there's hopes and dreams they're thinking about. Like, does he like me? Does she like me? Can I get get going something going here or you know whereas we're concerned about getting our characters going (laughs) yeah i mean i don't look at a man online and go oh i don't look at it like that i look at it like "Mm, interesting character he could be interesting could be interesting do you do that too i'm not that connected with reality (laughs) no no i don't sometimes i can be in a room and people can have a conversation i really haven't heard anything they've said because I'm elsewhere. Same way. And when I'm reading, my family used to think I had a, something wrong with me because I don't care what it is if I'm reading it. I heard nothing. Yeah. They could be screaming fire and I wouldn't hear it. I'd be reading. Yeah. I, I, that focus just came to me naturally. And I didn't think it was anything till, you know, I grew up. Yeah. 
I mean, it could be such a negative, but I think as a, as a writer, as an artist, it's a positive. You know, we're taking kind of a negative and turning it around into creating something. And the other thing that we can do when we're writing is that we can, we can, we can decide what happens at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's a great thing, isn't it? I think if I had written Jane Eyre, I would have had Jane and the mad woman in the attic leave, leave together. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> I think it's a terrible idea, but okay. <laughs> you know what I thought was weird in that book? And it still it still jolts me. And even when they go to dramatize it, and by the way, there's a great dramatization with Toby Stevens. Hmm. Like him. He struggles with this part a little bit, but then when he gets in there, he's pretty great. And the woman acting with him, forgive me, I can't remember her name. Uh, we'll post it later. Um, but there's, after she realizes, well, well, let me, let me preface everything with this, that Jane Eyre is a character that had no reason to do the right thing. She only had her moral code that she created within herself. Nobody, she was beaten. She was put in that orphanage. Her best friend dies. She, nothing goes her way, nothing. And yet always, always she does the best she can, works really hard, and does the moral. She makes the right moral choices. So when she finds out he's married, she's like, I'm out of here. And then that weird thing happens with that weird minister, and she's found in a ditch. And in the, in the, it, I mean, you know what? I see why you relate to this. Why? Because you have this moral code. I, I do. I don't live up to it, but I try. I'm no Jane Eyre, but I mean, I try. But I, 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 I'm more like Kathy, who makes a lot of stupid mistakes. Well, Kathy's completely follows her heart. I, I, I thought she was a little ditzy. You know, David Niven was in that movie, and he called Wuthering Heights "Withering Tights." <laughs> yeah, because I, I thought he. I didn't you think Lawrence Olivier was so wrong in that part? No, I thought it was great. See, that's my problem. <laughs> uh, I, I, he was all right. But, you know, he's a great actor. What am I saying? But uh, I, I felt he was so hammy Sammy in it. You know what? You know what the problem maybe was with Merle Oberon? Did you think she was great in it? Yeah. And weren't, didn't they fall in love in real life? I'm not sure. All I know is that when you take a book and make it into a movie, it's a completely different thing. Yeah. It's not even the same. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always think that we should do a movie together. We're going to do a movie, Alice. I'm working on something in my head. So we're going to get together and have lunch. But the other thing, Alice, that I wish, I, I, you know, for me to get my first one made, I had to work. So I had to work 13 years to get it made. I mean, it was like ridiculous. It might have been more than that, and which is ridiculous. But now if I was going to do it, I would have done a 10-part miniseries, like a, a lim- what they call a limited series, because... That's where books really can come alive. So I don't even care if it's a movie anymore. I want the limited series. Yeah, but back in the day when I was being a screenwriter, nobody would do TV because TV was kind of like beneath you if you were a screenwriter. And now it is so switched because I think miniseries feel like novels. You can really yes. get into it in this deep way. Yes. So, But know, Alice, do you remember from our youth um, – the Winds of War and Roots and yes. um, how about um, 
um, oh my gosh, the one out of Australia. Oh, the Thornbirds? You know, fire under the Thornbirds, fire under Gita, fire under Gita. We used to say that in our house all the time when something was burning, fire under Gita. And our entire family, we would call each other from all over the place when that was on because we were just loving it. Barbara Stanwyck was in it and, you know, and it has, so, there's so many moral problems in there and a hot priest. I mean, it was just like, you know, father, what a waste. Yes. But those were great. When I did my first film, this is embarrassing to admit, I wrote it in two weeks and sold it. And then it got made, you know, these things don't happen. And it had Diane Weist in it. It was her first movie ever. What was the title of the movie? Called Independence Day. There have been other Independence Days after. It was about domestic abuse, really. I think they realized that after they made the movie. And it completely died. I don't know if it was ever really released. It was released for like a a nanosecond. Who directed it? A guy named... um, Bob Mandel, it was his, I think it was his first picture and he was great. I think it kind of, it didn't help his career because it just died. And I think if it had come out now, it would have been different because, you know, it was about women, a a girl who wanted to have a career. It was about issues that I think were not thought of as important then. And that also happened to Practical Magic when it came out 25 years ago. Really? Oh my God, it was a big flop. I don't remember it being a flop. Oh, it was. It got. It's gotten bigger and bigger every year because I think it's because it was about you know women's issues, sisterhood, friendship, domestic violence, love, um, mothers and daughters. The fact that we're powerless a lot of the time. Right, and I think that was just not was. Those weren't the films that were being made at the time. Well, Diane Weist is a treasure, but Practical Magic. You had two women who became the the biggest movie stars in the world. Absolutely. Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman. Unbelievable. And they were unbelievable together. Oh my I, I was God. Lost. I was so lucky. It just kind of magically <laughs> came together. And a lot of it because of Sandra Bullock. She really wanted to make it and she really was behind it. Yeah. She's, she's very special. Yeah. I think so too. Nicole Kidman is, I mean, she's working class Australian there. And then also Stockard Channing was in it. I mean, I love Stockard Channing. Amazing, amazing. You know, Alice, I saw Stockard Channing in John Guare's play, um, the one where the imposter comes in. What is that play called? Please, Mr. Guare, don't hate me. You know it. I know the um, one. Yeah. Okay. But I was there. I went in previews. I try to go in previews when it's a dramatic, you know, when it's a play because things get cut. And I, wa- I really want to know what's going on uh, inside the playwright's heart and mind. And there's a, there's a scene that was cut from the previews, but I saw Stockard Channing do it where she calls the first lady, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, about this imposter kid. I don't know why they cut it. I was like, the, yeah, I was riveted. Hmm. But she's great. She's great. She's one of our greats. I saw her in a lot of different things that I thought she was great in here. She's work, she works all the time. She does. And then I had another film made, which was, it, it, I think like every girl of a certain age saw this movie called Aquamarine. It was based on a kid's book of mine about a mermaid and these two girls who find her. Now, the woman that directed that, I knew the producer, Susan Cartsonis. Yes. And I know the screenwriter. 
uh, or the director, rather. I think she was the director and the screenwriter, wasn't she? Didn't she adapt it? Oh, yeah. Because she said to me, I went to lunch with her at one point, and she was directing uh, Ramona, Beezus and Ramona, the Beverly Cleary. And she uh-huh. said to me, you read Beverly Cleary as a kid, didn't you? I said, like, over and over, like on a loop, I read her. And um, and she did these young adult books that nobody talks about anymore, 15, about this girl who goes on a date. They're very simple and direct in what happens to them. And the other one's called um, The Luckiest Girl. Mm-hmm. And it's about a girl who has to move. Parents make her go stay with this crazy family in, like, Portland or something. I can't remember the town. But anyway, she said, I could tell from your sentence structure in your books that, you know, you – take to her and i can read braid bat ray bradbury when i read you yes whatever you kept reading over and over again but look at us we're a couple of kids from small nowhere places I know. Okay, where we say where we say nowhere anywhere but new york uh i loved where i was from you you loved where you were from but there were no trees uh now you have trees i couldn't wait to get out well I'm, if i'm being completely honest i had big dreams and i couldn't wait to get out but i still love the people back home but I, I couldn't wait to get out. I do too. And I'm still friendly with a lot of those people, but all I wanted to do was get out, go to London and marry Paul McCartney. That was my only goal in life. Okay. I think he was the cutest beetle too. Oh, by far. Yeah. So mm-hmm. didn't that didn't work out for me, but it made me leave. Wow. So you were driven by that. You, you were in essence driven by romance. <laughs> Your trajectory to Hollywood is not – a strange story. I mean, great journalists and writers found their way out there. Hollywood took them on always. Yeah. Uh, there was a home for, you know, Ben Hecht and, and uh, uh, Helen Hayes's husband, you know, who am I talking about? Charles MacArthur, yeah. who wrote the front page. There were just a lot of stories of people that wrote in other genres that went out there. And then the designers and the designers and the actors and the, you know. You know, it's funny that you said the designers because when I went to the set for Practical Magic, I went to the designers workshop and I looked at, she had, um, the walls were covered with images. Like it was kind of like a mood board, like a huge mood board. And I realized she and I were the same. Like we build the world for the characters to walk into. And I used to do the same thing, you know, cut out pictures and have photographs and kind of think, create this world. And I always feel like that makes it so much easier to write a novel because then your characters just, they just walk in and do their thing. It's so true. And they, they say that when you make a dream board and you're manifesting it, like it will come true. That's interesting. Yeah, but you have such a sense in uh, of color, line, form, movement in your novels. I can I, I I know what they're I know the world I'm in. Um, when did you develop that skill, that artistic vision for your books? You're very icky picky about your covers. I'm looking at one right now, and they're the colors and the mood and the movement of the character on the cover. And it, it, I think it's all gorgeous. Where does that come from? I am very picky about that because I do judge a book by its cover. And if I don't know the author, 
but it, the book is beautiful. I'm much more drawn to it. And I also feel like books are kind of like objects. They're like, they should be beautiful objects just as a thing. Um, so it really matters to me, you know, kind of how a book looks. And, you know, when I think about how I started out and how I started to write, I think, you know, I read a lot of fairy tales and a lot of mythology. And my first novel, which is about Long Island, um, was told really as if it was a fairy tale. And Mm. I think I kind of took a chance and it was a way for me to kind of find my own voice. And when I was, when I was in school, I had a great professor named Albert Gerard. And he said, the most important thing for any writer, and I think this is true too, is the voice. Because he said, nobody can write the way that you do. It's like a fingerprint. And I think that's true. I read novels because of the voice of the novelist, not so much because of the plot, but because of the voice. Interesting, because people spend a lot of time chasing what they think is going to sell. I think that's a huge mistake. Me too. Who cares about that? Me too, because, you know, you could do something that people think nobody would buy this book and it could be a huge success. You don't know what's what will be popular. no. We're in the business of the one-hit wonder. Yes. There are people that write one book, and it hits the stratosphere, and they just go away on an island. Never hear from them again. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what else he said, which I, I think is the opposite of what most writers are told, but which saved me? He said, don't write what you know. Write what you can imagine. Oh, I agree with that. That's profound. Did that same professor say that? Yeah, because I think most people say, write what you know. And like, that's one book, I think. That's one book. It's like looking into a pipe. <laughs> what right. I know. <laughs> There's nothing there. Do you find when you go places, because I go places in your novels that I just would never go to otherwise, do you find when you travel, it ignites things in you? And where's the place on the planet that does it? Absolutely. It happened. It's happened to me in many different places. but um, And it could happen to me. Well, it happened to me with um, a book that I wrote about Pizarro. I went, to, I went to an exhibit. It happens to me in museums a lot, to tell you the truth. It, I went to an exhibit of his paintings, and I, I, I saw that he was from uh, St. Thomas. I thought he was from Paris. I saw that he was Jewish. I had never known that. And then it said that his wife, his wife, um, his mother was the, his wife also, but his mother was involved in the biggest scandal on the island. And I thought, well, I think this is a novel. Mm, How brilliant. You know, Modigliani was Jewish. He was an Italian Jew. I didn't know and that. And one day, one day he took his paintings, he hated them, and he threw them in the canal. <laughs> really? And do you know they've gone digging for his stuff? Yeah, because he sculpted too. He was, he, he had a temper. <laughs> I, I'm sure they've made movies about him. I just haven't seen them. But he, he was a character. But isn't it interesting how we find people, these yeah. characters in history, and we connect to them? Yeah. Because, I mean, for me, very often, it's about telling the story of some woman who was not able to tell her own story. And so I feel like 
I can kind of step in and tell that story as best as I can. Alice, you, you have a lot of life ahead of you. What are your dreams? What do you want to achieve? What do you want? We're going to make a movie. That's one thing we're doing. But what do you want to do? I feel like I always want to do something new and something different. And, you know, sometimes I think, well, you know, people retire, but do artists ever retire? Do writers ever no. retire? I don't think so. You keep doing it. You keep doing it till you keel over. Yeah, exactly. That's what I plan. We know that you love being alone and creating the world and you love that first draft, which is you're sending a beautiful message to everybody. I think we have some big takeaways in our conversation. One of them is that it's not some fancy anything to recommend writers. We come from every strata of society, but the working class writers those of us that come from your tradition, my tradition, who never thought in a million years they would get published, are the ones who keep trying to refine their craft. I think, you know, the idea is that, you know, if you want it, you can walk through the door. And I think, you know, one of the things that happened to me is that I wrote a story and my professor helped me get it published. And I got a letter from Ted Solitaroff. Do you remember him? Great editor. I know the name. Never met him. Oh, just a great editor. And I was out in California and he wrote a letter and said to me, do you have a novel? And I wrote back to him and said, yes, I do. And he said, well, send it to me. And I started writing that day. And in six months, I had a novel. And you sent it to him? And I sent it to him. And he worked on it with me for about six months. And then he didn't take it. He took a novel by Tom Robbins. Even cowgirls get the blues. Which is fine, but he sent me to my agent, Elaine Markson, and she was my agent, you know, until she died. And um, I felt like he, the door was there and I decided to walk through it. I could have said, no, I don't have a novel or I don't know, maybe I will in a year or something like that. Um, But I think, you know, I said yes and I walked through the door and that was it. And you really never looked back. Mm Mm-mm. You just keep moving. Yeah. Well, I think Italy's in your future in a big way. I think you have to have that next. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. You got to have that next. All right. Now, just tell, before I let you go, you went to see Harry Styles in concert. I did. And I want the, I want the Alice Hoffman take on Harry Styles. I thought it was great. And not only was he great, but the audience was great. It was really a different kind of experience going there and feeling like you were all in something together. It was kind of a being in a way. And he's very also generous to his fans. And, you know, I could see why people love him. I think you and Harry share something. Really? I think you love what you – yes, I do. I think you both love what you do. Oh, Thank you. And you wouldn't be living any other life, even if it was offered to you on a plate. You'd go, nah, I want to be an artist. Don't you think? You know, sometimes I wonder if certain things are even a choice. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I mean, I do believe you make choices in your life, but 
you know, sometimes maybe you're meant to wind up in a certain place. And maybe it starts for people like us the first time we walk into the library. We just knew it was that we knew it was our jam. Exactly. And so better that we walked into the library and had that experience than into a bar. <laughs> Probably. Because we would be a couple of crusty ladies at the bar. Yeah, that would be okay, though. <laughs> it would be part, maybe it's part of the experience. I'm looking forward to us working together. Well, that's going to be fun. And also, I have, to, I have to say, you are so generous to other writers and to readers. And I just want to thank you. You've been doing it for a long time and it's not everybody who does this and you open the door for a lot of people. So I just wanted to thank you. Well, I, I accept that beautiful compliment because I get yelled at because I sort of poo poo compliments. I go, Oh really? I know. But I take that into my heart because I looked at it this way, Alice, look what this is, this podcast. I'm talking to you, somebody I, revered and then you were real then we then we hung out and then look what's happened i mean it's a wonderful friendship and yeah i want i want the audience to know that i want them to understand that we're not like all on a bunch of islands and that we don't communicate with each other if i have to say one thing's changed in the last 20 years it's that that's one of the good things of the phones and the you know that we can get in touch oh i never told anybody i was a writer I would say I was a typist. I don't know. I, I just I just had no community. And I just thought maybe I thought I wasn't worthy or I thought it was too personal. But now it's completely different. I mean, we are really friends and we can really talk about writing. We can and that's really talk. Yeah. No, we can really talk. It's important. It's important. It is. Well, I love well, you. Well, Alice Hoffman, I love you. I love you. And we're going to talk to you again and I'm going to see you soon. So all that makes me happy. But this was beautiful. Don't forget, happy Halloween. Dear listeners, I just love Alice Hoffman, and I know you do too. Her name comes up wherever I travel. She has such a fan base, and I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. And I hope that you're looking forward to reading The Invisible Hour. I just loved it. But go back and treat yourself to the backlist because there's over 30 titles, and they're each and every one a jewel. Well, let me just put it this way. Alice Hoffman is a jewel, priceless diamond, and the gold standard in our publishing industry. So I hope you'll take a deep dive into her work and you'll come away with a whole new perspective on books, learning, plots, characters, structure, and yes, magic. <laughs>